please take your Bibles and look with me at Second Chronicles chapter 26. Second Chronicles chapter 26. It may be a place in your Bible where the pages are stuck together. This morning we want to fix that, at least for that chapter. Whether in children's stories, historical biographies, or simply reading the daily newspaper, I imagine that we are all familiar with stories that serve as cautionary tales. Formally, this type of literature is written to instruct and to warn. But informally, actual events or historical things that are happening that we read about or hear of can instruct us by way of example. Perhaps the most readily recognizable form of modern cautionary tales comes from tragedies that occur in our contemporary context that are reported on the news, that we watch, that we listen to, or that we read daily. Two years ago, while I was hunting in northeastern Missouri, news broke from the same county in which I was hunting under the headline, Opening Day Brings a Dark Reminder of Hunting Dangers Following Accidental Shooting. Reading of that tragedy immediately brought to my mind many warnings. There was an admonition inherent in the tragedy. Firearms must be handled with care. But there would be more. In the subsequent weeks and months, investigations uncovered more details about what happened. It was revealed that those involved in the accident were hunting in a restricted area, and most tragically, the individual who was shot was not wearing hunter's orange, the safety color which is required by law to be worn during firearm season in Missouri. With this new information, the tragic loss of life took on new instructive force. The admonitions and the warnings from the story became more pointed. Now the tragedy was not only a reminder that firearms must be handled with care, but it was also a reminder and admonition to follow safety regulations. It was not only an admonition to be careful, but a warning against foolish and dangerous decision-making. In a similar way, the historical narratives that we have preserved for us in Scripture often serve as divinely inspired cautionary tales. In fact, according to the testimony of the New Testament, that is one of their purposes. Romans 15.4 says they are written for our instruction. 1 Corinthians 10.11 says that they are written for our admonition, for our admonishment. And this is our purpose this morning as we give our attention to an inspired account of the life of one of Judah's kings in the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 26 tells us of King Uzziah. Many of you probably know him from your reading of the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Isaiah's famous throne room vision in Isaiah 6 occurred in the year that King Uzziah died. We can learn a bit about King Isaiah in the short historical accounting that happens in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, and then the first seven verses of chapter 15, where he is called Azariah, same guy, Azariah, Uzziah. Wait till we read his father's name and it gets even more confusing. The short account in the Kings, or the book of Kings, is enough for us to learn that tragedy marked the ending period of his reign. The Lord struck Isaiah with leprosy. But not unlike the example of the hunting tragedy mentioned above, the more details that are provided, the more piercing the story becomes in its admonition and in its warning to us. 
we learn from the chronicler's account that the real tragedy was not Isaiah's skin disease, but the devastating sickness that led to him being struck with leprosy. Follow along as I read 2 Chronicles chapter 26. I'm going to go ahead and read the, the entire story. 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And all the people of Judah took Isaiah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. He built Aloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Isaiah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Now he went out and warred against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities in the area of Ashdod and among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal and the Midianites. The Ammonites also gave tribute to Isaiah and his fame extended to the border of Egypt for he became very strong. Moreover, Isaiah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the corner buttress and fortified them. He built towers in the wilderness and hewed many cisterns for he had much livestock both in the lowland and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and the fertile fields, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Isaiah had an army ready for battle, which entered combat by divisions according to the number of their muster, prepared by Giel, the scribe, and Maaseah, the official, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's officers. The number of the heads of the households of valiant warriors was 2,600. Under their direction was an elite army of 307,500 who could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. Moreover, Isaiah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and sling stones. In Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Hence, his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Isaiah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary. For you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Isaiah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they hurried him out of there. And he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. King Isaiah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Isaiah, first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, has written. 
So Isaiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave which belonged to the kings, for they said, He is a leper. And Jotham, his son, became king in his place. It seems as if we could close in prayer, having just read the story. The tragedy is plain, the example is clear. Seeking and faithfulness led to astounding success. Yet with that success, Isaiah exalted himself and he met a tragic end through the judgment of God. His story serves as a cautionary tale for our instruction and admonition. And the author of Chronicles, or the Chronicler, is writing after the exile when a group of Israelites have returned to Jerusalem following their captivity in Babylon. The portrait we get from the books of the period, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Micah, show that the people were prone to lapses in their faithfulness. They were apathetic and struggling. And the Chronicler is writing this theological, historical account to this forlorn, lethargic group of God's people. And he intends by his writing to exhort his readers to exhort these original hearers to seek the Lord. He writes to inspire faith and hope in them that would result in obedience to God's law. He wanted the people to know that the God whom the returned Israelites were accountable to is the same God who had carried out his purposes from Adam in the Garden of Eden all the way to their present day. He had made everlasting promises to Abraham and to David and to their ancestors. He had punished wickedness and rewarded faithfulness just as he had declared he would do to and through Moses on Mount Sinai. Hardships and difficulties faced by the Israelites were not the result of any failure on God's part. The chronicler makes clear. But those were a result of unfaithfulness on the part of the nation. Through the accounts of faithful kings who were obedient and blessed and unfaithful kings who were disobedient and judged, the chronicler emphasizes the need for the faithful to fearfully persevere. And as we seek to receive instruction and admonition from this story, we're going to organize our look at this passage around three observations that urge God's people to fearfully persevere. Fearfully, that is, with awe, with reverence, rightly esteeming God who is holy and punishes wickedness. And to persevere, that is, to continue in the faith, to press on, to endure. Our first observation comes in roughly the first half of this story, which is the first 15 verses, and that is simply that seeking God led to success. Seeking God led to success. Isaiah reigned in Judah during the period of the divided kingdom, and it was a remarkable period of prosperity for Judah. No doubt in large part because of the longevity of Amaziah, the father, then Isaiah, his son, and then Jotham, Isaiah's son. So based on the way that the king's reigns are counted in Scripture, uh, including co-regencies that are shared between father and son, Isaiah's total reign is reported at an astounding 52 years. 52 years he had a share of rule in Judah. 
Now, the opening lines of chapter 26 may indicate that Isaiah was sort of popularly placed into power while his father was in prison in Samaria, but it shouldn't be understood if we coalesce all the accounts together. We, we should not understand or take away from that that somehow he usurped his father's role. That didn't happen. They shared a role. They were co-regents for a season. The first half of this story really serves to emphasize Isaiah's success and then the reason for his success. That's really the point. A lot of details, but a very clear and simple point. His successes were many. You read that, the list just keeps going and going and going. His successes were many. He was one of those guys. Whatever he set out to do, it worked out very well. He had success in war and defense, conquering enemies and protecting Judah. He had success in building and development, building up the infrastructure of the city. He had success in farming and agriculture. As Verse 10 gives us this, this sort of interesting little personal note, right? He was a man of the soil. He loved the dirt, and it worked out. His agriculture, it worked. Whatever he set his hand to do, the Lord blessed. He had success in building up and outfitting a great army down to their weaponry. He, in, he built things that were invented to protect the city. He was astonishingly successful. And more than just recounting the manifold successes of Isaiah, the author makes clear that the ultimate cause for all of his success was God himself. It's unmistakable in the way the story is told. First in verse 5, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Then down in verse 7, God helped him. Again in verse 15, his fame spread for he was marvelously helped. And it seems the implication there is that God marvelously helped Isaiah. So the writer wants us to know that his help from God was connected to his seeking of God. That's essential to what the chronicler is doing throughout his accounts and especially in this one. Now this seeking seems, based on verse 5, to be the result of godly influence, which we want to pass over. Zechariah, who depending on your translation, if you have a New American, understanding, a New American Standard, it talks about that he had understanding from God, which he used to instruct Isaiah. Or if you have an ESV or other translation, it says that he instructed Isaiah in the fear of the Lord. Either way, the point is that Zechariah was a, a profound influence on Isaiah in spurring him on in seeking God. We may say that Zechariah discipled Isaiah, and with the result of that, Isaiah sought God, and as he sought God, the story is clear, he prospered. Seeking, in particular, seeking the Lord is an important theme throughout the Chronicles accounts, First and Second Chronicles. So as we pick it up in verse 26, there's already been a big history in his work about seeking. It's often used to differentiate between the faithful and the unfaithful. David's public charge to his own son Solomon at the end of First Chronicles exhorted him to know and serve God with this. He said, if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Later, the obedient are described as those who set their hearts on seeking the Lord, their God. And the disobedient and the evil 
are referred to as those who did not set their hearts to seek the Lord. So here in our story, seeking God is, is, indicates to be devoted or to be loyal to him. Remember, David told Solomon, set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Asa told Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law. Among other things, we may say it this way, seeking the Lord meant the rejection of idols, the teaching of and obedience to the law, believing God's word that came through the prophets that were sent to the people and the king, and the faithful adherence to prescribed worship. And the story that's told throughout Chronicles makes clear that seeking is attended by the blessing of God. That was one of the reminders to this people who received this account. In Asa's day, the people, it says, entered into the the covenant to seek the Lord with all their heart and soul. And as a result, the Lord gave them rest on every side. It's in 2 Chronicles 15. So in our passage, Isaiah is initially a positive example of seeking the Lord and receiving his aid. And we're instructed and admonished through that. By observing that Isaiah's seeking led to his success, we're reminded that seeking the Lord with the whole heart is what God desires from us, and we're urged to persevere in our faith with fear and trembling, hoping in him and not in ourselves. Jesus himself taught, right, that loving the Lord our God with all that we are, all our faculties, all our energies is the greatest commandment. We learn from the Proverbs that Seeking the Lord is the path of wisdom and blessing. We learned last week that those in Christ have been granted every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we also know alongside that that we've not yet become perfect or obtained the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. And so we must press on, seeking in obedience. The writer of the Hebrews says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So from this first observation, one, one question, one admonition is simply this. Do we believe that he, that God, the God we profess faith in is a rewarder of those who seek him? The writer of the Hebrews equates that with faith. The faithful seek the Lord, believing that he will ultimately provide all that he has promised. Isaiah's life started out seeking and the Lord's promises for those people in that time came to pass in his life and he was wonderfully successful. But his success led to a devastating sickness. Our second observation that urges us to fearfully persevere occurs in just the first half of verse 16. Isaiah's success led to a devastating sickness. After telling of all of his success and how he grew strong with the Lord's help, verse 16 says, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. When he became strong... Isaiah's seeking led to success, but his success led to the devastating sickness of pride. 
the writer tells us it's not only that he had found success in what he had done and that he was able to build, able to outfit the armies, able to grow whatever he wanted in his agricultural pursuits, but also his success brought fame. Verse 8 says, verse 15 says, both say that his fame extended throughout the land and beyond. But as a result of all of that, his heart was lifted up in pride. Our New American Standard says that his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And the ESV is a helpful parallel. It says, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. His heart was lifted up to the point that he would be destroyed. Because of the deceitfulness of sin, Isaiah reached a point where he no longer sought the Lord. He no longer looked to the one who had granted him all of his successes, but he instead he became proud of all that he had accomplished. Now all the things that he had been helped in, he had done. Pride has many forms and manifestations. Puritan pastor and theologian Richard Baxter helpfully defines pride the following way. He says, pride is an inordinate self-exalting, a lifting up of ourselves above the state or degree appointed to us. It is an appearing to ourselves and a desire to appear to others above what we are. It contains a will to be higher or greater than God would have us be. An overvaluing of ourselves. Esteeming ourselves to be greater, wiser, or better than indeed we are. An endeavor or a seeking to rise above our appointed place or to be overvalued by others. Isaiah was a proud man. And it would lead to judgment. As a consequence of Isaiah's grave spiritual sickness, he developed spiritual or theological amnesia. He forgot the Lord that had so greatly helped him. The people of God had been warned about this all the way back on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, when Moses said, look, the Lord has said, your heart will become proud and you're going to forget the Lord. That was the warning then. You may say in your heart, the Lord said through Moses, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you power to make wealth. But in his power, in his strength, in his fame, in his success, Isaiah forgot God. By observing that Isaiah's success led to his devastating sickness, it should remind us, it should admonish us and warn us of the propensity of the heart toward the sin of pride. And it should urge us to persevere in putting off the deeds of the flesh, clothing ourselves with humility. Success or accomplishment, comfort, prosperity, all these things that many of us know in abundance are conditions that are conducive to the devastating sickness of pride. Not because it's wrong that we have those things, but because of the sinfulness, the deceitfulness of our hearts. God was the one who prospered Isaiah. That wasn't wrong. What was wrong was how Isaiah used that to exalt himself, literally to lift up his heart over and above God. And we must be diligent to guard our hearts from seeing blessings that come from seeking God as something 
that has resulted from our own strength. We must constantly remember just the plain warnings from James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 that tell us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Isaiah forgot that. The spiritual sickness in Isaiah's heart would soon demonstrate life-threatening symptoms. And the pattern of what the Proverbs say, pride going before destruction, tragically plays out in his life. The third observation then that urges us to fearfully persevere comes from the rest of the story, verses 16 through 23. And that is that spiritual sickness led to God's judgment. Isaiah's spiritual sickness led to God's judgment. Isaiah's pride bore the fruit of unfaithfulness. Verse 16 connects his strength then to his heart which is lifted up in pride and then immediately the result in that he is, acts corruptly or unfaithfully. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. His unfaithfulness is sort of a, it's an infidelity of disobedience, but of a particular kind. He transgressed God's worship laws. He entered the temple in his pride to perform an act of worship that was limited to the priests. Number 1640 said that no one who was not of the descendants of Aaron was permitted to burn incense before the Lord in temple worship. There are other places that make that clear as well. Shockingly, shockingly, this man who had been instructed in the fear of the Lord is now high-handedly transgressing a very obvious restriction. This shows how deep his pride had gone, how high he had exalted himself. This act of unfaithfulness then it results in it's an incredible scene. The prideful king is in the temple preparing to offer worship in a forbidden manner. So 81 priests going after him. Right? This isn't like one of those mm, hard to understand restrictions somewhere deep in the law. Right? 81 priests see this and go in after him. And the text tells us that Azariah the priest was leading the way and that they were valiant men. Now why, why valiant? Well, because to oppose any king would require great courage. To oppose a king who had been wonderfully successful, who had brought the entire nation such prosperity, even more courage. And just as an aside, it's a reminder. These men are an example to us. It takes courage to confront a sinning brother or sister. Their concern for the honor of the Lord was greater than their fear of what Isaiah might do. And he could have easily had them all killed. They went in in faith and out of reverence for the Lord. Their confrontation is firm and direct. They opposed Isaiah the king. They say to him, it is not for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. And they admonish him, get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord your God. Now, there are two sort of critical symptoms that ultimately reveal 
Isaiah's spiritual sickness. First, he refused to tremble at God's word. That's clear. This type of transgression that brought 81 priests out to stand down a king was not a minor issue in the footnotes of the law. He did not tremble at God's word. He knew what he was doing. The history of God's people up until the point of his reign included plenty of examples of unfaithful individuals disobeying God's worship statutes and suffering severe consequences for them, for that transgression. Devastating consequences. It didn't matter for Isaiah. He was, his heart was lifted up. Second, and tragically, he refused to heed the warning of the faithful. Don't miss the fact, as we read the story, that Isaiah had an opportunity to stop. The confrontation of these 81 priests was a grace. It was a mercy. They come charging in to stop him before he finishes the transgression. The appropriate response for a faithful king would have been to repent, to humble himself before the Lord, to come to his senses when he was rebuked, and to seek forgiveness, which the stories of the Chronicler make clear other kings had done and had found the Lord compassionate just as he promised. But so great was Isaiah's pride that he was enraged by the priests and their warning. So here's the great king with 81 men standing before him, calling him toward faithfulness while he holds the censer for burning incense and blinded by his own pride rather than set the censer down, come to his senses and repent. He is furious with them. And as he demonstrates his fury with their righteous confrontation, judgment suddenly strikes. Verse 19, but Isaiah with a censer in his hand for burning incense was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the altar of incense. So as he's enraged at their confrontation, leprosy or a skin disease immediately breaks out on his forehead. And according to God's law, Isaiah is now ceremonially unclean. The priests hurry to get him out of the temple because of that. And now, tragically, he's compliant too. He saw what just happened. He'd just been struck by the Lord in judgment. And so he rushes out as well. Would that he had just listened moments before. But it's too late. The skin disease, this, skin disease, this, this leprosy, would mark the rest of Isaiah's life. The punishment was this illness that could bring death but more immediate and perhaps more painful was the fact that he was separated from the Lord's house of worship for the rest of his life. He was banished from the temple of the Lord. He was cut off from worship. The very thing that he had set out to do in all of his arrogance on his own terms was no longer even an option for him, even on the right terms. Verse 21, King Isaiah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging 
the people of the land. So he can't worship. He can't run the affairs of the kingdom anymore and so his son's co-regent, as co-regent, takes over. Here we have Isaiah. Once at the apex of success, he concluded his 52-year reign with illness, in isolation, unable to do his job. And it seems, according to verse 23, that he even had a disgraceful burial. Rather than being buried in the, in the tombs of the kings, he was buried in an adjacent field. And the closing testimony of his life was simply the epitaph, he is a leper. Isaiah's early faithfulness and his accompanying success make this later unfaithfulness all the more instructive for us. The text tells us at the beginning that he prospered as long as he sought the Lord. And yet we see the tragic end of his life. Perseverance in the fear of the Lord is required and Isaiah didn't persevere. He didn't continue seeking. He didn't kill pride in his heart with the help of the Lord. Early steady seeking was, of course, commendable, and we don't want to miss that. The writer actually says that. Yet it was no guarantee of his later faithfulness. He didn't stay on the path. He didn't continue running the race in such a way as to not be disqualified. It's interesting that his early success is connected with the influence of a godly man in Zechariah, whereas his later failure is connected explicitly to a refusal to heed the warning of a courageous godly man. God's judgment was swift, and it may seem harsh to us, but we also want to remember that Isaiah had been no doubt taught about the Lord's compassion toward those who humble themselves in repentance. Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. No doubt he also had read and heard Solomon's prayer, not heard in person, but heard it told later at the temple dedication where he beseeches the Lord to remember his people and his promises and to forgive sin when his people repent. And he heard God's gracious and read of God's gracious response, which is in this work of Chronicles to Solomon, where the Lord says he will forgive and he will be compassionate when they seek him in repentance. No doubt he had heard stories of earlier kings who found compassion when they returned to the Lord. Yet in his pride, he refused to acknowledge sin and he incurred God's swift and terrible judgment. And by observing that Isaiah's spiritual sickness led to God's judgment, we're reminded that unchecked sin in the heart can lead to defection and accompanying consequences. Unchecked sin in the heart can lead to defection and devastating consequences. The warning of Paul to the church in Corinth suits our look at Isaiah's life. 
Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. God is not mocked. Men and women will reap what they sow. Unfaithfulness leads to judgment. The scriptures teach us that we must run the race according to the rules, that we must discipline ourselves lest we be disqualified. Of course, all enabled by the grace of the Lord. But we are called to pursue that. We are called to persevere. So we petition the Lord, let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. Isaiah's life is a tragic, cautionary tale that should press us toward fearful perseverance. Observing his early success urges us to persevere in seeking the Lord with whole heart. The Lord has promised to be with those who seek him, to be found by those who seek him, to be a rewarder of those who seek him. Observing the devastating sickness of pride in his heart urges us to persevere in guarding our hearts in humility. And observing the judgment that Isaiah faced as a result of his high-handed sin urges us to persevere in repentance, taking sin seriously so that we're not disqualified from the race. These admonitions from what was written then that are for our instruction, they, they serve as warnings at least in this case. And they're intended to keep the faithful on the path of following Christ and to call the unfaithful to repentance. 